I'm Joe. And I'm Josh. And this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where the hosts take turns challenging each other to browse a unique section of the video store and select a film in under one minute. If a title is not selected in time, we'll have to hit the video Dropbox and defer to what's in the basket. So, Joe, yes. in the last episode, mm. you asked me to pick an anime film as part of our challenge. Yes, indeed. I selected Ghost in the Shell. And so, before we get to that, I was just curious, why anime? Well, first, I knew that you didn't have much experience with watching anime. So I thought that might be an actual challenge. I also have a long love and history of anime. If any youths of today are listening to the podcast, uh, they might not realize what the anime landscape was back in the mid-90s when I was a fan, as opposed to now, where it's in mainstream pop culture. Back then, like you had Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z on television. I don't know if you were ever watching any of that, Josh. I knew of them, but I never actually got into them. There was a kid in my high school that was super into anime, and he unfortunately was like the targeted, you know, the very stereotypical. Yeah, of campus, because, you know, we had these rich white private school asshole kids that just didn't understand. Yeah, because if you would walk into Blockbuster Video specifically, back around that time of the mid-90s, every single VHS of anime would have a you-must-be-18-or-older-to-rent sticker on it, regardless of the content. No one had watched it to judge. They just had this thing, and no one knew what to do with it. So just slap the sticker on, and it's fine. I specifically got into anime because at the time, I was really into comic books, and the best way to get those in central Wisconsin, where we don't have a lot of big comic stores, was going to science fiction conventions around Wisconsin. And also at these conventions, they'd have a room off to the side that would be uh, screening anime. And a lot of that would be bootleg stuff, because at the time, like, you weren't guaranteed that everything that was coming out in Japan was making it to the U.S. It was very select titles at that time. And then around the same time as Pokemon became such a big phenomenon, my family got cable. So there was... First off, on the Sci-Fi Channel, they had Anime Saturday Night. And there was also the Disney Channel, which was playing Kiki's Delivery Service, which is the big Studio Ghibli film now. So once that was accessible, I kind of had two groups of anime fans. There was my high school anime fans who were more into the Magic the Gathering, but they liked all, you know, it was very stereotypical. All things nerd, they were into. At the time, anime, not very accessible. You would get a release of three, maybe four episodes, if you were lucky, on one VHS or DVD, that would be like $25 or $30 a piece. So one person in the group would buy that, and then you would circulate it. So each person's buying a different show, so that's how you save money. Then moving to Minnesota, the few friends that I had here originally were also in an anime kind of cosplaying group uh, that we would go to conventions with. So I got very into the scene, but then everything seemed to go wrong. Going to college, as those anime friends are fading away, that's also when anime fandom in general switched. It was around 2005, because 2005 is when Naruto started airing in America. That's the ninja anime that all the kids love. I got to a point where I'm going to these anime conventions now alone, and I'm surrounded by hyperactive 14-year-olds in Naruto cosplay running around, and I'm so out of place. That also coincides with just the Japanese anime uh, industry in general really changed around then. Like It, it really moved away from hand-drawn animation at that time that's being done on computers, and I feel it became more of... The anime style became more of a brand that you could sell. So a lot of the uniqueness, to me personally, uh, really started going away. What I'm wondering in like 2005 era, you're saying, right? When everything started to change, was this also, I don't know, in my mind, I feel like stuff started showing up more at like Hot Topics and stuff like that, where it was becoming more commercialized and popular in stores like that. I think I mentioned in the last podcast that the only film I had ever seen was Spirited Away. And that Mm. was one, obviously, word of mouth. And I feel like probably because, did it win a bunch of awards? or Oh yeah, it it won the Oscar. It it won the Best Animated Award because that was just like the second or third year that the Best Animated Feature category had started. When I bring that up, because you actually did share, other than me picking Ghost in the Shell, which I knew was a film that you had owned, you had shared one other, the one that was in the box that I did end up watching. And even my, my experience from that, those two films, I will say like, they are vastly different. 
than a film like Spirited Away. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Studio Ghibli films are a great introduction of anime, but that does not encapsulate. <laughs> They're kind of their own bubble, I feel. Like, you can be into those, but there's more that Hayao Miyazaki films don't exactly prepare you for. Are they almost like the kids-slash-family um, genre of anime? Oh, yeah. Compared to the others, like, is that how you would maybe categorize it if you had to put it in, like, a sub Yeah, it's good. Yeah, they're the more all ages. And I feel they do, the topics they deal with are, I feel, more mature. But I would definitely, in comparison to the rest of it, it's definitely, like, an all ages fantasy world that they have going for them. Uh, what did you think of Perfect Blue? I absolutely loved it. I'm glad we did Ghost in the Shell, but I'm really sad <laughs> I didn't default to you to talk about that film because there were so many elements in that that I absolutely loved. And I'd love to, before I give you more thoughts, just kind of get an idea why you had that one in the basket. Well, I felt like with you just bringing up the erotic thriller genre, I'm like, that kind of fits into it. And I've always felt like that is probably the most accessible adult anime, I feel. For the kind of movies, I guess, that we've both talked about before, even on this podcast, this, I felt, really fit that genre. And it's funny because the whole time I was watching it, I kept thinking, God, Joe really knows me pretty well because he <laughs> must have known, like, from the back of your mind, you're like, this seems like a Josh film. Yeah. Like, he would really <laughs> like this. I just, like, the music, the fashion, the, the, I, the main character, like, it's all just so great. And I, I think what I love the most about it is that as it winds down, it really was a big mindfuck. I know we're not here to talk about that film and go through it, but I just, I really love that it was like, wait, so is she crazy? Is she not crazy? I mean, it just right. it keeps having you guess. And all I kept thinking about is how the fuck has this movie not been made into a live action film? Oh, it has. Oh, it has. That's oh. it's uh, and it's not good because the history of this film, it was originally supposed to be live action. But then because of budget cuts, it ended up being and there was like a long and winding process of it because it's based on a book and they were trying to make it for a while. A few years later, they remade it in live action in Japan, and it's just completely forgettable. Well, and I know that you're probably not a big fan of what I'm about to say, but um, <laughs> I actually was thinking it could easily be adapted into like an American oh, yeah. version now, like a current American version. Yes, there's some things that they'd have to change with, oh, I don't know how to use a computer and all of that. But like, <laughs> I just kept thinking of it as like, how exciting would it be with this, you know, subplot of the girl at least leaving a girl group and getting into acting and having to do all these things that she doesn't want to do, but she's doing it because she's trying to make it. And then she's slowly going crazy. Like, I just, I love it. And like you said, that 90s erotic thriller type feel could be really, really interesting. And I do love, so here is the tie-in for the 90s erotic thriller that it seems like one of the ongoing murder weapons is the ice pick. It oh, looks yeah. like an ice pick to me, yeah. which reminded me of Basic Instinct. So we are not far-fetched by saying that this is a 90s erotic thriller. Do you Definitely. have any other, other thoughts before we start? No thoughts, I don't think. I can jump into the background information regarding Ghost in the Shell. This picture represents the leading edge in the new animated entertainment genre and marks a milestone in the future of feature-length animated filmmaking for young adult audiences. Ghost in the Shell. So this was originally based on a manga the Japanese comic book from 1989, and it really doesn't have anything to do with it. That is because it has the fingerprints of Mamoru Oshii, who I would say, after John Carpenter, is probably my favorite movie director. Because if you listen to our pilot episode, Ghost in the Shell made my top 10 favorite movies. I've actually, after we did that pilot episode, I freaked out and had to anxiously reevaluate my list. So now Ghost in the Shell, I actually consider in my top five. And that's actually kind of a revolving door of other Mamoru Oshii films too. It's a, this one, or he did these two Pat Labor films. It started as a show that, you know, like the giant mech suits that you see in anime a lot, but it makes them more mundane where they're used for like the police force and for construction. But the movies he did, the first one's a detective noir and the second one's a political thriller, and they both really delve into the psyche of post-war Japan. And they're a lot like Ghost in the Shell, too, with just the way they, they look and the music. But rewind on Mamoru Oshii, the style that he developed is so different, I feel, from just about all other animators, where starting off as kind of a budget cut thing where he would loop just a little bit of animation 
to provide atmosphere. And it's more like you're saving money. You have less to animate. But there's he did an experimental uh, animation called Angel's Egg, where there's like a three-minute shot of just someone sitting by a fire, and it's only the flames that are animated a little bit. But it just comes off like once you put it in the scene, it's like very atmospheric. And this comes up. He doesn't do it as much, but it pops up in Ghost in the Shell and the Palaver films, too, that there are scenes, if you're paying attention, that all this dialogue is going on or the music's going on, but the frame is staying still or like only one layer is being animated of all these different layers he does. Uh, I'm geeking out about Mamoroshi right now. I got to stay on track. Uh, Another big thing with him though, his partner in crime, Kenji Kawai, the composer, is a huge part of his movies. Like the music of Ghost in the Shell really sets the tone and he's worked on just about all the other Mamoroshi films too. And just to point out, another telltale sign of a Mamoroshi film uh, is Basset Hounds because he had a basset hound so he would put basset hounds in all of his films so if you're watching the background of this basset hounds show up all the time so that's mamoru oshi but moving on the box office of ghost in the shell which is a little hard to tell because this is in the mid 90s and when it's released in the u.s i mean it was probably spread out but in japan it came out november 18th 1995 which is really interesting because a mere one week later in america it was the release of toy story So you have a seven-day span of monumental works of animation being released. Technically, Ghost in the Shell gets released in March 29th, 1996, but I don't believe it charted. At least I couldn't find it on the charts. But the number one movie that week was one of your favorites, Josh, The Birdcage. Oh, nice. Were people going to these films back then in Um, theater? Not really. I mean, really, the only other big anime film that had come out before this was Akira. And it w- that was a huge cult hit, but it didn't really bring people to the box office. I bet it was more VHS because for Ghost in the Shell, its VHS release was June 18th, 1996. And it actually topped the billboard charts for video rentals. So this, like Akira, like there was just a huge cult audience for it, especially, you know, mid-90s, people are super into that cyberpunk. You know, you have Johnny Mnemonic, you have the net, which we've talked about. People mm-hmm. are very interested in computers. In terms of critical feedback... I checked out numerous books in this video store of Leonard Moulton's Movie and Video Guide, and he never reviewed it. Well, I went to the Video Movie Guide 1999, and that had the review. It got three out of five stars, saying, In a vast Asian city of the future, a female cyborg investigates the sinister doings of a mysterious supercriminal invading the 20th century, 21st century's information highways. This engrossing Japanese animated feature is definitely not for small children. The confusing plot and dull American voices are drawbacks, but the visual style is fascinating and the action often brilliantly executed. Just a little off topic since they're talking about the english dub yes um i thought the biggest thing that stood out to me is that like it was very jarring to watch that version with the english dub at first however Mm. i could get on board with everyone except for the woman who did major's voice and i'm not trying to shade but like she was so flat through the whole movie that i just i was like is that a choice like are they trying to make her seem more like a machine because it was just like Bato, I don't know what you're talking about. It was just the inflection was very weird. And I, I yeah, just couldn't I ima- get on board. I imagine those were the notes they told the voice actress and she went with it. So yeah, it's not her fault, I don't think. And I feel like the problem with the dub in general, too, is that so much of Mamoru Oshii's style is about the silences where he's using music or just nothing at all. And there are multiple times through this where in the dub, they're adding extra dialogue or rushing through the dialogue there. So you get fewer of the scenes that were meant to just be atmospheric. Well, and it was interesting to see that there actually was a difference. It's in English, but the English subtitles are way different sometimes. And you're like, yeah. wait, why did they do that? Like, why didn't they just say what they're subtitling it as? I don't understand like how it changed so much. I think uh, sometimes they, the English dub changes because they're trying to match up with the mouth movements. And it's going to be different because they're saying things in Japanese. That's what it's animated for. So that's kind of the major reason why things can be rewritten. But also there are things that I just don't understand. Like in the first scene, there's kind of a witty joke that the major says in the original where they say like, oh, I'm hearing a lot of noise in your brain. And she says like, well, it's my time of the month, which is like, haha, she's a cyborg because she doesn't menstruate. Um, <laughs> but they changed it in the English dub to just be like, oh, I must have a loose wire. It's like, that's a weird choice. Did you think a men- menstruation joke? was out of bounds when she's walking around topless for half the movie? I don't know. 
But the one, the one that did stay consistent that I, I'm going to call out now is when they have the body of the puppet master and the one guy is like, well, I'm off to rip her apart. <laughs> I think that was probably my favorite because I think that's how it even read in the original version. He's just like, well, I'm off to rip the body apart. And I was like, yes, thank you. Thank you for keeping the important things because that was just chef's kiss. So with that said, so the film opens and we have protagonist Major Kusanagi. And I'm just going to call her Major the rest of the time. So it's Major and her team staking out a meeting between diplomats. So Major does an iconic swan dive off the building. And meanwhile, the police raid the meeting. And one of the men in the meeting states that he has diplomatic immunity. So bullets start flying and immediately kill this man. And when the police rush to the window, they see Major free-falling, and she uses her thermal-optic camouflage to disappear. During the credits, we're seeing shown a sequence. Now, is, is she being regenerated because she was injured, do we think? Or is this maybe when she was first created? I'm, I'm guessing this is they're showing when her current body is first created. Okay, because I wasn't sure if it was... I mean, we don't see what happens after she disappears. So I don't in my think mind, she just falls off the building. I was kind of wondering like, if she's just like, okay, I'll be okay when I hit the ground because they'll just regenerate me or what. She definitely is a character who does not give two fucks. So I yeah. think she could easily be like, well, mission you know, accomplished. They'll yeah. just do what they can to bring me back. As long as I protect my head, I'm good. So anyway... And as the body is slowly rising, as it's being regenerated or created, it starts, you know, it sheds its shell and emerges from a large pool of water. And we cut to her uh, waking up alone in bed. And immediately she pulls the blinds back and there's this great shot of the city. That's an example where he just lets the scene run. Like it, it goes for a while just on that shot of the city through the window. And the major is just off screen doing who knows what. So I feel that there aren't a lot of other like animators who do that or animation studios, I guess, that are kind of confident enough in the work to have that kind of style. So. To just take the time and let you take in the this, yeah. the imagery. Cause there's a lot of that in this film. Like when she's yeah. again, we'll get to it on the boat, but yeah, um, no, I, I really like that too. So after, you know, we leave her apartment, it cuts to um, an exchange in an elevator between the chief of section nine who questions the ministry of foreign affairs about an upcoming secret talk. Section nine is thanked for helping clean up that messy, in quotes, situation from the other night, which we're presuming is the major situation. Um, we cut to a lab. The body that they have there that they're plugged into, they explain that it was hacked by someone named the Puppet Master. And the Puppet Master is presumed to be an American with a long rap sheet. The believe he is attempting to access the secret talks that was mentioned earlier in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And as a precaution, everyone involved in the secret talks is put under surveillance. So we then cut to, and I do love this scene, two garbage men who are kind of shooting the shit. And they're immediately cut off by Batu, who is following a lead on the puppet master. Batu arrives at a payphone and asks a local if he's seen anyone accessing the phone. And the local is standing there with his garbage, just kind of disheveled, saying that, you know, one of the garbage men was talking and that he thought he had more time to, you know, rush out there with his garbage because he was on the phone. They just drove on by. But yeah, they just kept going. And then Batu immediately hightails it out of there and starts following the garbage man, leaving the poor guy holding his garbage. He's like, wait, what about my garbage? Can you take it? <laughs> Meanwhile, we, you know, we go back to the drivers and there's the passenger who is a little bit more irritable and mm-hmm. does not give two shits what the driver is saying. And then the driver is just talking like a mile a minute, basically being like, oh yeah, and these are my wife and kids, et cetera. The passenger is just completely disinterested. And this is like, I don't give a shit. And so to make matters worse, the poor passenger, he's just trying to sleep and kick it. And then all of a sudden the phone rings in, you know, the garbage truck. And so he answers and he finds out that the police are interested in their route. And that immediately triggers the driver who starts flooring it and begins a high speed chase. Major, meanwhile, patches into HQ and tracks the garbage truck with her partner, Togaso. The garbage truck approaches a cloaked man and the driver yells out the window, they know. And the cloak man immediately shoots out both vehicles and flips the cars. So instead of being like, thanks, man, he's just like, nope, you got to die now. Well, the garbage man does lead them exactly to him. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, and he just like is yelling out the window, they know. Yeah. So I guess it's pretty obvious. But um, the cloak man turns invisible with his cloak because he also has that technology that Major has and is tracked by Batu. 
to a busy market nearby, and there's a huge shootout in the market. The man ends up getting away, who is then confronted by Major because she's been tracking him from up above, and she takes him out. And it's revealed that the man was hacked by the puppet master along with the garbage truck driver. And they explain to the garbage truck driver like what's going on, but he refuses to believe it. And he's convinced that he does have a life with a family and kids and that he had sublet this apartment because he's going through a split. But they're actually like, nope, it's just a shithole, single bedroom, and you live alone. And you never had a wife and kids. And so the fucked up thing that I had to write down is that... He's told that his original memory might never be restored and that he might have residual fake memories since they do not have the technology to reverse this. So I feel really bad for this poor guy because he's a pretty innocent bystander and and now he's got his brains all messed up. But uh, I do remember also when they go to the shot of his shithole apartment, there is a basset hound on, in a commercial on his television. Oh, and and we get that shot of they sh- they say what is actually in the picture, and then they show oh, yeah. instead of the wife and kids, we see a close up of him just smiling, holding a dog leash. And- I think it's someone walking by him who has the basset hound. I'm not exactly sure if he has the leash, oh, which makes more okay. which makes more sense because I've wondered that before too. Is like, oh, he has a basset hound, but then they, when they cut to the apartment, it's like, where's the basset hound? So- yeah, exactly. After the interrogation, we cut to Major, and she's sinking in this body of water. And as she rises, she gets onto a boat, which, you know, Batu's sitting there drinking. And drinking he's, San Miguel. He, and that's San Miguel. And he's asking if she's ever afraid of drowning, which I didn't even think about that until I watched it. I was like, because he says something about, like, aren't you uh, ever afraid that your floaters won't activate yeah. or something like that? And that makes sense because essentially what we find out is that Major is just a brain in like a mechanical body, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the only human part of her. Yeah. And so, yes, if you try to imagine that, like, being a machine in the water, you're going to sink. There's no way you could just float back up yourself. Anyway, she explains that she likes diving because she feels anxiety, loneliness, darkness, and also hope. Batu asks what she sees at the bottom of the darkness, and then there's a voice. The translation was, for now we see through a glass darkly. And both her and Batu are like, whoa, what the fuck was that? And where did that come from? So we cut to a boat ride through the city. Yeah. Like this is like a six minute sequence. And this is a stylistic trope of Oshi because he did this before in the two Pat Labor movies. There are these like signature kind of center of the movie montages where it's just animation and music. It does have that iconic score playing Mm -hmm. over this whole thing. So after this beautiful sequence, we cut to a busy highway and there's a blonde naked woman standing there in the rain and she's struck by a truck. So we cut to the lab where Chief Aramaki Aramaki. and Batu tell Major that Megatech, a company that creates shells, created this blonde woman's body. Apparently it had escaped and was brought in after being hit. And so we also learn that the body doesn't have a single brain cell yet indicates a ghost, which is really puzzling to everyone because they're like, how can a body have no living DNA or brain cell? So the crew starts leaving the lab and I had to write this because I thought it was really funny as the description too. They pass the fat guy, I put in quotes, (laughs) Chief Nakamura from section six and some quote, white guy in the elevator major questions the body's existence and what if a computer could generate a soul? What then is the importance of being human? So after that intense, deep thought, Togusa becomes immediately suspicious of the fat guy and the Americans' interaction. So he looks into their intent and questions the pressure sensor and all that. Yeah, he's watching the surveillance and the the time it takes for the door to close too. So, well, not only that, I think what triggers them is he's in the parking lot and he's like, there's no way that these two fuckers drove themselves. Oh, right. I think, yeah. is there two cars? Yeah, and there's he's two just cars. Like, there's no way they drove their way too hoity-toity. So he's convinced that someone's using that camouflage technology, which he also at some point says, I believe it's illegal to use it in their section. So they're on the defense. And meanwhile, Nakamura reveals that the blonde woman is the puppet master that they've been searching for. And they developed the program that lured him into this body. The puppet master then, while they're talking, activates himself and immediately requests political asylum. And he explains that DNA is like a program and that it can be manipulated. He also goes on to explain that he is not AI, but Project 2501, a life form born in a sea of information. And 2501 is mentioned briefly while the major is listening in on the conversation from the opening scene. So it's kind of like, oh, it's all tied together. 
So the lab is immediately attacked and the body stolen. Togusa manages to shoot a tracker on the car that flees with the body. And while the team tracks the car, they notice a decoy car kind of meet up with it at some point. So Batu follows the main car while Major tracks the new white sedan, which they keep saying very adamantly, a white sedan, white sedan. So uh, when the OG car that took the body is cut off by the police, they find that the body is gone. Meanwhile, Major follows the white sedan to an old warehouse. So she drops in by a helicopter and is immediately attacked by a tank inside. And she tries taking it out herself, but she just does not have the right ammo and gear. So she uses her invisibility camo to get a drop in the tank. And she's trying to rip sort of the top of it open. I'm guessing to like stop it from the inside or something. And it's a very effective scene. You see her whole muscles just throb and burst. She gets, yes, like super muscular. And then, yeah, they're like ripping out of her body. It's a very intense image because you see like this beautiful woman being overtaken by all the muscles in her body. And then, yeah, the muscles tear and then the technology just totally busts and she's thrown to the floor. Her arm breaks off. And a leg, I think. I think it's like one arm and one leg. And so the tank scoops her up by the face. And before it can do anything, Batu appears and just blows that motherfucker. Not sky high because it's still kind of in place, but he basically is just like, see, this is what took me so long. I had to get this awesome gear. So uh, while that's all happening, there's an air raid that's being prepared. But before that happens, Major decides to dive in. And the puppet master reveals that Project 2501 was created for industrial espionage and data manipulation. The program wandered through various networks and became self-aware. And Puppet Master explains that he was looking for her the whole time. And she's obviously like, why? And he says, to exist, to reach equilibrium, life seeks to multiply and very constantly at times giving up its life. Puppet Master wants to merge with Major to create a new and unique identity. And Batu hears, he's hearing the one-way conversation is like, oh no, you're not merging with her at all. And so he tries to unplug her, but Puppet Master at this point can control pretty much anything. Or it's a master hacker. So yeah, he takes control of his hand. Yeah, because we, again, early on, we hear about all the bits and pieces of what, you know, people have. And I think Togusa was the only one at some point, I didn't include that in the conversation, but they did say he's the closest to human out of all of them. Yeah, he only, other than like the hookup or the basic thing, he is the only like real human, which doesn't come up too much in this movie, but it comes up in other Ghost in the Shell properties. I think the sequel and the show, that the original show, Standalone Complex. There's also a good point that I meant to include in this, but I forgot to, that we could bring up now that I thought was, again, a very horrifying, fucked up thought is at some point on that boat between Batu and Major, she says, if they decide to quit or retire, they have to give back all of the technology that was installed in their bodies. And so I'm just yeah. like trying to imagine. So if Major's like, I'm done, I don't want to do this anymore, what happens to her? Because she's essentially just a brain at this point. Yeah. Right? It's like, is your body somewhere? <laughs> yeah. Or like, do they just put it in like a floating jar and it's like the consciousness <laughs> is still there, but it's just in a lab somewhere? It's it's one of those just basic assembly line blonde women that pop up through the movie. It's like, oh, here, you just get one of these. Yeah, you get like a basic body, a busted body. It's like uh, Death Becomes Her. I imagine that, like, you know, at the very end where they're all like their skins peeling off and everything. Anyway, so Puppet Master explains that, you know, after merging with Major, she will bear offspring into the net just like humans, which I had questions about. Then, of course, she immediately is like, well, okay, maybe, but will I still be me? And the puppet master can't reassure her that. But he does tell her that if they merge, her consciousness will be elevated to a level she's never seen before. So um, my first question is, Joe, what do you think that means? That she will bear offspring into the net? Uh, The puppet master said he's not AI, but I guess that's what I kind of get the sense of. That it's, you know, different programs as opposed to humans. Because how they've already compared computer programs to DNA, that that seems like something that they'd be able to create and kind of send off on its own way. Well, there's an intense conversation at some point where they say, you know, a copy is just a copy. He wants something Mm -hmm. more real than that. But I'm wondering if maybe that's essentially what it's like, is like, you know, when you keep making copies, it gets a little bit more diluted each time. And so maybe that's what it is. It's it's like the same consciousness, it just gets diluted with each Mm. offspring, which is essentially 
what life is, isn't it? You know, when two people <laughs> procreate and then there's a little part of them, but it's not the full them. And then my second question to you, Joe, is would you take this deal? Oh, um, you know, being in the position of the major that we've seen her in, the where she really seems like she has some heavy thoughts in her mind. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a pretty good deal. Like she doesn't seem very happy with how things are going uh, or bored, I guess, more than anything. Uh, I think it was a good deal for her. Um, I don't know. It's just a different situation for you because you have more at stake if you were using your real life, like because you have a partner and like that would affect all that and your family. Whereas like, you're right, like her situation, she's solo. It's like the worst she's going to do is lose a part of who she is, which then at that point, she's not even going to remember. So moving forward, not backward, right? Yeah. If I had to ask myself this question, regardless of my personal situation, I... And again, I'm not a a mechanical cyborg, uh, you know, (laughs) machine, but I just imagine me personally, if that was offered to me, I would end up being like Kate Blanchett from Indiana Jones and my head would just explode at the end because she has too much information. It's just like, I want to know everything. And it's just like, oh no, no, I take it back. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And then it's too late. So, but yes, I could see the appeal. I guess if I had an artificial body, yes, I would be like, yeah, let's do it. But if it was my body, mm. so while you know they're having that debate, the helicopters zero in on the bodies and immediately fire. So they completely destroy the puppet master and blow Major's head off, and it flies into a nearby body of water. So there's sort of a reboot by Major. And we see it from her POV as she wakes up in a little girl's body, which this is my next question, because he goes on to explain like that he saved her shell and and the body does kind of look, I mean, the body doesn't look like her, but the face and the hair cut. So if she's just a brain, did he just attach a head to a child's body or did he actually transplant, you think, somehow they transplanted the brain into the child's body? That's I always just assumed he put the brain into this child's shell. But I, it never occurred to me that maybe that's her head on there. <laughs> like he just put, because it does kind of look like her, but just with the context of the rest of it, uh, it, it it's does. obviously not hers. So. And maybe he just had it styled to look like her. So she right. felt more comfortable when she woke yeah. up instead of being like, you fucking asshole, you put me in the body of a baby. Because <laughs> obviously she's not going to grow. I mean, she's just going to yeah. be in that body forever now. And um, that just does say is like, yeah, this is all I could find on short notice. Yeah. I mean, and we're, you know, we're told that the reason for that is because it's the best he could get out of the black market. So, right. uh, but he does go on to explain that he has her hidden away in his safe room and that no one's ever been there before. And then he also goes on to explain in detail that the case had been closed on the puppet master and all the loose ends had been covered up. The only mystery that was remaining is what happened to Major's missing shell. And then Batu questions whether she is actually present in her new body. And she tells him that she finally understands what she was saying that day when she was diving. And again, I actually researched this because I didn't trust whatever was in the subtitles. So this is what I found online. It said, when I was a child, my speech, feelings, and thinking were all those of a child. Now that I'm a man, I have no more use for childish ways. What is that from? I don't know. Do you know? <laughs> I don't. It's a quote from something famous, but I, I should have done that research. Is and that, I apologize is that from the, the Bible? Oh, that's all. I just saw that it was the actual quote that, that she said, the translation oh. in, in the movie. But maybe you'll figure that out in the next few minutes. Um, <laughs> but as um, Batu and Major go their separate ways, they, she also says, you know, he uses, I think, oh, did you figure it out? Uh, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 11. Oh, so. There you go. So yeah, as they're going their separate ways, you know, Batu says, oh yeah, I'm using code 2501 as the code for his car um, or keypad entry or something like that. And she also goes on to explain something about how um, when we meet up the next time, we'll use that as our secret code. I believe that's what she says. And then there's that shot of her standing above the city, looking out at her endless possibilities. And she states, and where does the newborn go from here? The net is vast and infinite. Oh, uh, and then the end credits hit and the song is actually one minute warning by the passengers, which was a super group of U2 and Brian Eno, which I didn't realize until I was Wikipedia in this. Wow. I had no idea. So with that wrapping up the plot, the best I could do of <laughs> Ghost in the Shell, um, here is where we should incorporate our conversation about any thoughts on 2.0 and- oh, gosh. 
and or the American remake. It can be brief. We don't have to get into it too we, in depth, but uh, we can do 2.0 first. So okay. I forget I forget when this was released, but it was a re-release of Ghost in the Shell, and they CG animated key sequences in the film. Uh, and they also weirdly, inexplicably cut out certain shots in other areas because I was researching this. I was looking at this to see what differences might be, uh, and something you know you can find online the different frame cuts and whatnot. I guess I I consider this it's like the George Lucas Star Wars Special Editions version of anime. I don't know what you think. I was just going to say that. Like, so obviously I watched the OG first and then I watched this version and I was just kind of puzzled of like, why did they just do the computer animated parts in some of it? Because it doesn't sync. It's not like, it's it, it doesn't flow through the movie. It's just kind of like, oh, look, like the opening when she jumps off the building, yeah. it's clearly like all just redone. Yeah, And even her, I think she is yeah. computer animated, yeah. which is like, why? Because then immediately cuts to that hand-drawn animation. And it's like, well, this looks like one of these things is not like the other, you know? <laughs> yeah, it feels more like a video game cutscene than a movie, which is so weird because it came out after Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence, which also uses a lot of CG animation, but it uses it in like really weird, trippy ways. So it just seems it's yeah it, it feels like it's a PlayStation Two video game cutscene for these things to me. Yeah, other than that, I didn't obviously notice too much of a difference because yeah, there's the, there's a few shots, but it's I don't think it's anything substantial. But it was really like apparent when you could tell like oh oh okay okay there there it's now I'm watching 2.0 I, I totally had forgotten because <laughs> it goes for a while. Yeah. Um, it just seems so unnecessary. It seems like a cash grab or like a reason to re-release it. I suppose just re-release the film. It's fine. Like you don't I, have to I fancy th- it up. I think when I read about it, it did say that some of the voices were redubbed too, which oh. I don't understand why they would need to do that. I think they did say some of the original actors, now I might be getting this all wrong, but some of the original actors may have redubbed or redid some of their dialogue and some of the music too, which I don't, again, oh, right. I don't understand yeah. why would they do that unless... yeah. It's like an issue of copyright and essentially it's like the Taylor Swift lawsuit where she's re-recording all of her music so she can re-release yeah. it. Yeah. Like and this isn't an issue of like how George Lucas was with uh, Star Wars. Like it seems like I'm unhappy with this, so I wanted to put it in. I don't remember reading anything that like Oshi oh, was upset with how the movie turned out, like, oh, I really wanted it to be this. It just like I don't know. It's just so weird. I honestly forget it exists all the time. Except, like, until we started researching this, like, oh, that's right, this this is a thing. And my, uh, you know, final thought on that is like 2.0, it just, it wasn't needed. Like that was just my thought. I mean, I know a lot of people feel that way, but like, I don't know, it doesn't add anything. And I didn't really think that it was that fantastic. Yeah. At least, the original. at least the, they put the original on the disc as well. Yeah. As a special feature. Thank so, God. So yeah. then moving to the American version. Yes. One. Okay. <laughs> the first thought is. Had you seen this before or did you watch it for this episode too? Okay, I, I didn't watch it recently. I watched that first. I hate to sell, tell you. I, I saw oh, no, the Scarlett it's... Johansson version a long time, like whenever it came out. Yeah. And I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, I was a little out of my mind when I was watching it. <laughs> so I don't remember a lot about it other than that iconic opening scene. And also remember thinking like, I thought she was naked. I don't know why she's, because she's not naked in that movie, right? Isn't it just like a no? She has body, she has like a, yeah, like a body sheet thing, yeah, like, yeah. And it's not that that brings that much more to the film. Like we don't need nudity, but I just think for the loyalists, it probably was really upsetting because I find it really interesting with movies like this where you have a formula that works so well. Your job, all you have to do is just literally copy every single thing. You could do a shot for shot film and yes maybe the acting wouldn't be great but at least that would i think satisfy people because they'd be like oh now i can see sort of like a live action mm-hmm. version of this movie and i don't remember it following that very closely. no no like they do like a real boring redux of it i and i don't know i don't remember all the specifics of how the plot changes but it's just it's yeah it's really flat i remember the one thing i did like that beat to who played the villain in Battle Royale, another one of my five favorite movies. He plays Aramaki in this, uh, and I appreciate him. 
But the rest of it, yeah, it's like, why did you, it's weird that you made these choices. But if we could talk for a second about, because when this film came out, the controversy surrounding it, which it happens with whenever they kind of adapt to anime or something, is that is whitewashing it. Because like you have Scarlett Johansson here, but this is a Japanese movie and, you know, it's taking place in Hong Kong, so who knows. But this movie makes a really weird decision. And I'm curious how you felt about it. Because spoilers for this movie you don't need to see. <laughs> uh, it turns out that Scarlett Johansson and Michael Pitt, who plays the puppet, is he the puppet master or is it some difference? Of, he I was just looking and I don't see master. the word puppet master listed anywhere. And okay. so I think so it must he's be just some weird. version of it, but I don't. Yeah. Both of them, because you're like, oh, now it's just these white people. It turns out that both of them were originally Japanese people whose ghosts were taken out and put in these current cyborg bodies. So they make the whitewashing part of its own plot, <laughs> which like, God, it's like you saw the controversy coming and then just decided to lean into it, saying like, they actually are Japanese. They just happen to be in Scarlett Johansson's body. Uh I don't know if I like that, but it's so weird that that's the one that I'm like, huh, well, I wouldn't have thought of that. I was gonna I was gonna bring that up and just say like I wonder what the thought was of like because clearly there are a lot of capable Asian actresses that could have filled in for this role or even find someone new, like discover yeah. new talent. Like why why Scarlett Johansson? Well, I think she had part in getting the movie made, didn't she? I thought she had like oh, behind maybe. the scenes. So it could be one of those things. But even that, just was... stay a producer, don't? Yeah. You should know and, better. Yeah, and this was like just before Crazy Rich Asians, where now it seems like, oh, Asian people are acceptable in Hollywood movie roles now. Uh, so that's probably a thing where you just you don't see it as viable until suddenly a movie makes a lot of money with them. In it, so. Well, I did think about this Let's say they did, just for the hell of it, make a shot-for-shot live-action film, and they did still cast a white actress as the lead, and they somehow justified it. My question to you was, if it had come out back when this original film had come out, how do you think it would fare with a Bridget Fonda in the role as Major? Because I kind of was thinking that. I was like, well, okay, if we had to cast an American actress in this role we of major... had to do one. I was thinking, actually, the two that we've talked about before. So Bridget Fonda, who is... We're very, very fond, pun intended, oh, yeah. of. Um, <laughs> I, just given her, you know, role in um, Point of No Return, I just oh, kind yeah. of, like, have that imagery for some reason. Or my other thought was, like, what about Mila Jovovich? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, like, both of them would be, I feel, more interesting choices. I don't have anything against Scarlett Johansson. I think she's a great actress, and she's obviously very beautiful and talented. But, like, I I don't know. It just, now seeing the original film, it just doesn't even feel like they're trying to get this essence of Major there. She's just kind of, yeah. like, a mannequin. Yeah. So Yeah, which maybe that, maybe that was a stylistic choice. I just don't agree with it. Well, any other last thoughts? I guess... I'm glad you seem to like the film because <laughs> I was worried because I feel like this is one of those, and maybe I was talked about this a bit at the end of the last episode too, is that when people, when there were the, these gateway animes of the late 80s, early 90s with Akira and this, it's like, these are not simple films that you can just like go in and watch and turn your mind off. Like, I guess you could, but especially with, like with this one, I mean, there's so much downtime with the atmosphere. It's just, it seems weird. Like it's cool that this was people's, first experience with a more adult look at animation, but uh, it does make me fear of using this as a gateway as opposed to like a Studio Ghibli film where it's like all ages, uh, it's light and whatever. Well, and the reason I put so much pressure on myself is because I wanted to, you know, up until this point, I have had pretty extensive plot summaries. I won't deny that. And I, I wanted to do this film justice. I didn't want to phone it in, just be like, oh, the girl jumps off the building. And then there's people that are in an elevator that talk about something political. And that, you know, I don't want to breeze through it. Like I legitimately wanted to try my best to explain what I thought was going on, because that's kind of the beauty of this podcast and these challenges is it's fun. That's why, you know, Joe and I were talking offline, like he was a little worried, like, oh, did I throw this at you? Something that you have no experience or desire to do. And it wasn't even that. It was just that this is exactly why we started this, because it's to get both of us out of our comfort zone and to pick something that we ordinarily wouldn't 
be watching because I think we're all both open to watching whatever. It's yeah. just that's the fun is the interpretation from a different person's perspective that ordinarily wouldn't be watching something like this. So I hope that I did the film justice and that everything made sense <laughs> from my point of view. <laughs> I, I guess my last question to you, Joe, is back to the original Ghost in the Shell. Do you feel this held up? Because oh, I have yeah. nothing to compare it to. So yeah, no, it's still top five for me. I feel like I've burned myself out watching. I mentioned the Pat Labor films that they can hold a spot in my favorite films, but I watched it a lot. So then it kind of gets replaced. And I assume it's going to happen eventually with Ghost in the Shell too, but it's not there yet. I just, gosh, like just sinking into the mood that the whole experience puts me in is fantastic. So any other last thoughts before we move on to the challenge? Oh boy, let's go on to the challenge. All right. I too wanted to challenge you, Joe, on something that is probably completely out of your element. Maybe you'll oh, surprise gosh. me, but All right. are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. As okay. ready as I can be. This week's challenge, the section of the video store you must choose a video from is a Mary-Kate and Ashley film. Oh my God. <laughs> are you ready? Uh, yes. Okay, starting the clock now. All right. I am familiar with absolutely zero of these. Uh, so I am looking up Harry Kate Nashley. It takes two double double toil and trouble. Oh man. Uh, from the title alone, that one sounds good. Are these themed? Can I ask you that? Do they have themes to their movies? Yes. Okay. Usually. All right. Um, Definitely locations. As you'll see as you go through them, you'll see. Oh, yeah. They, they like become the more, part. yeah, lo location. All right. See, like, I don't want to keep referring to, like, or, like, deferring back to the basket, because, but, like, I trust your opinion, and, like, I know nothing about this, but I should just pick a random one and see what happens. It's up to you. Oh, gosh. All right. I might, I might have to go with double, double toil and trouble. Give me, how much time do I have left? You have 54 seconds. 55. Oh, so I have five, okay, no, so I three have seconds, two seconds. Uh, all right. Second. Well, let's do, let's do double, double toil and trouble. Okay. Is that available to watch? <laughs> I'm going to have to look. And if, and we can make this rule because I don't think we've discussed it. If we have trouble finding this one, should we just make a rule to default to whatever's in the basket? It's, I mean, you can get it on YouTube and like Apple TV and stuff and Amazon Prime. Okay. So, so. Double, double, toil, and trouble. Is that? Gosh. Okay. Well, I'm very curious. Josh, what movie was in the basket? So this is a visual for you only, but I will explain it. This is one of my favorite purchases ever. There's this four kids pack. Oh, my gosh. Passport to Paris, Winning London, Holiday in the Sun, and Win in Rome. I also own I Love New York, <laughs> and I believe it takes two. But so I, I picked the one where they don't visit somewhere. It's a young, they're young. And to be honest, I'm going to say, like, I haven't seen a lot of their young films. Oh. So the one I was going to pick was Passport to Paris. Oh. And we could have talked more in depth about why. But I do feel that these two women are entrepreneurs of a, mm. of a time. And when these films came out, I don't know, I did have, like, a very specific affection towards them i don't know if it had if it was speaking to my you know hidden queerness at the time mm. but i just think they're they are important pop culture icons that we need to appreciate and and explore in depth more because they have a lot of films i mean like i haven't even talked about there's like i said a lot of films while they were younger and I just really like the trajectory of them because as they got to these locale films, they started, you could see the, the shift change, the tone from like fun, silly twins to like now preteen girls that are getting interested in boys. And then eventually we get through the era where they're kissing boys and then they have boyfriends. And oh. then they're now, I think uh, I Love New York was the last film that they did, which was their first feature-length film. Oh, I take it back. I'm sorry. It Takes Two was in theaters too, but I believe it was the first like grown-up feature film that was released in theaters, and it was sort of like a say la vie. Like, after that, I don't believe they did any other films. Oh. So, for that reason, I know it's kind of a long-winded way of saying 
I love the Olsen twins, but I think people forget about them and don't appreciate them for their contribution to the video market. Yeah, and I know nothing. And I think my wife is familiar with a lot of these, so she'll probably have some opinions when I tell her which movie I picked. But I'll also watch Passport to Paris because just reading about it, that was the first more grown-up one they did. So I'm actually, I know if we're going to talk about this, I'm really curious about what that that switch that you were kind of talking about, like how that evolution, I guess, of their uh, their personas. They're very silly movies. And to be honest, like these are the ones that I started watching. I mean, obviously I knew them from Full House, but I never really got into any of this until I started watching. They were like reoccurring films on like ABC Family, which I think is now, no, I think it was Fox Family originally. And then it switched to ABC Family. But it was one of those like routine films that they would air, you know, on like cable TV. And then sort of like the Disney Channel. You know how the Disney Channel has that huge genre of like all those Disney stars that are popular now, like Selena Gomez and Camp Rock and all this stuff, the original movies. And again, I'll have to do more research and look into it, but they're all formulaic, you know, where it's like, oh, each, especially these older ones, like they're in a new location and they're playing these different characters and they're going to meet boys and will they or will they not be with the boys? But every movie, somehow they make it, at least this is my memory of it, Every movie, they somehow make a way to make the characters completely different, which sounds crazy because Winning London, Passport to Paris, Holiday in the Sun, and When in Rome should be the same movie in in four (laughs) different places. London, Paris, Rome, and Australia. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the Bahamas. The Bahamas. But somehow, they're different. They pull it off. They they have some choices, and... uh, I don't know. I just, that's why I'm so fascinated with it. Because like I said, and like not every movie, both twins end up with a boy. Like there's one oh. where I think, I think it's Passport in Paris where one of them is the only one that ends up with a boy. And I don't know, we'll have to get into it. So yeah, I'm so. looking forward to it. This is a lot of research that I really don't know anything about. So, and I was just trying to shake it up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I thought, what could be the furthest film for this uh, franchise or genre away from Ghost in the Shell, uh, yes. Mary-Kate and Ashley film. So, yes. Great. So, please visit us at Video Dropbox Podcast on Instagram or at Video Dropbox on Twitter. Uh, and if you'd like to contact us, you can reach us at Podcast at gmail.com or send us a message on our social media pages. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And until next time, please remember, be kind and rewind. Mm-hmm.